episode 166 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Point. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. I'm Lieutenant Commander J.D. Davis. I'm a currently a F-35 and F-18 Super Hornet pilot in the U.S. Navy. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Today's episode is pretty much anything and everything you'd ever want to know about the Navy, about flying an F-35, the Super Hornet, about Tip, who, <laughs> believe it or not, that is his call sign, Tip. <laughs> kind of a funny story uh, later in the podcast as you listen. But Tip uh, did not take the standard path to becoming a officer in the Navy, to getting his wings, per se, in the Navy. He actually went a very odd route that most people probably would have given up. He didn't get into the academy. He uh, was not a pilot when he first enlisted. So it's very interesting to hear his story and how he overcame that adversity to really get after the dream that he had of flying for the Navy. Aviation, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Instagram. And huge news, huge, huge, huge news, product announcement. Well, I'm not going to announce the actual product, but we have a launch date. We are aiming for 5-4, May 4th. That's right. May the 4th be with you for a big product announcement. So stay tuned. If you know, be quiet. If you don't, it's awesome. And I cannot wait for it to come out. Christy and I have been working really hard on this, so it's going to be pretty cool. We just turned our whole uh, studio slash second bedroom into kind of a, a shipping station. So it's uh, it's been crazy. So if you've seen me kind of feel a little bit disconnected from the podcast, from the Instagram, this is why we've been really building this and I hope you guys really enjoy it. So please stay tuned and, and tell everyone to be looking forward to 5-4. It's going to be pretty cool and I'm really excited. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast a lot. It was a lot of fun talking with Tip. He uh, he's, a, he's great. I would love to have him, like I said, in this podcast be my navy guy anytime we have a question about the navy boom tip comes on answers it f-35 question boom start f-35 demo team boom tips here so i'm really excited i hope you guys enjoy this without any further ado i want to go ahead and introduce you to tip jd aka tip what's going on man welcome to the pilot the pilot podcast Glad to be here. Yeah, uh, we we were laughing a little bit before, but uh, I'm going to call you by your call sign tip, which uh, I don't know the full story behind it, but it's pretty cool to have a call sign, have a nickname. When I was growing up, I always wanted one. I never joined the military to get one, but uh, I'm very envious of all those call signs, but I'm guessing they all have a very uh, unique story behind them. Yep. they uh, All the call signs, man, they go back probably World War II, maybe even beyond that. Um, and, you know, sometimes they're really funny. Other times they're just acronyms for something stupid you did. Uh, other ones have to do with your personality. Uh, you know, they, it just runs the whole gamut uh, as far as how call signs come about. What's um, the coolest call sign you've ever heard? Oh, man. That is a tough one. The coolest call sign I've ever heard. Outside well, of tip, of course, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, th- I would have to say that like the Navy versus Air Force call signs are very different. Um, you know, a lot of times in the Air Force, you'll guys will have call signs like Razor or like Blade or, you know, Blaster or something like that. <laughs> the Navy, most of the time in the call signs in the Navy, we're just kind of making fun of our buddies as, uh, you know, camaraderie building. Um, you know, so in the Navy, coolest call sign I've ever heard. Yeah, I'd have to think about that one for a little bit. Um, most of them, are, the ones I know, are, are acronyms um, for something that 
you know, they did stupid along the way. Do you have one that's like your, your the dumbest one you've ever heard or anything like that? Or did you think about that one too? Uh, if I said it, my buddy would probably kill me. <laughs> <laughs> right, what are the chances because, he actually listened to this, right? <laughs> uh, okay. I'm just going to put him on blast right now. All right. Uh, that's what we're here like, for. This is not, this is a, one example of a call sign that's an acronym, but it also describes this person relatively perfectly. So one of my old college buddies, uh, we went to school at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Um, and, you know, he's a very tall, uh, blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh, looks like he came straight over from, you know, Northern Europe, uh, kind of guy, very, like a very Swedish look to him. Uh, so his call sign was Swede, uh, S-W-E-D-E, but it really stood for salty without ever demonstrating expertise. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that's wow. a very typical, you know, Navy version of a call sign. You know, the Air Force guys, I'm not sure how they give people their call signs, but they, I think they just want everybody to think, um, you know, that the call signs are awesome. And the Navy, we use it as more of a camaraderie building, see who you are as a person and give you a call sign that corresponds to that. Or you did something stupid uh, along the way. Yeah. I like Swede because like outside, if you just told me it was Swede, I'd be like, oh, cool. Like he's just, you think he looks like he's from Sweden. So that's cool. But there's also a double meaning behind it. Exactly. And that's why that call sign is one of those ones that kind of like, he looks like he could potentially be from Sweden, but his call sign actually means something different. And I also love how we've been talking for probably like three minutes when I hit record and you've already taken shots at the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not taking shots at those guys. To be honest, I, I would love to have a call sign, you know, like, you know, I don't know, Blade or something like that. Uh, it's just, it's just, you know, the two different services do two things very, very differently. Um, and it really what it comes down to is we're both trying to achieve the common goal. Um, but we do, we do it two very, very different ways, uh, as you probably can understand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every, co every company outside of the military too has their own culture. They do things differently. So there's no difference in the military. There's multiple ways to get the job done. And just cause they do it differently doesn't mean that's wrong. No, I 100% agree with that. You know, we, you know, the air force does things one way we do it another way. Um, and obviously you throw the, the ships and things into that, that we have to deal with, uh, you know, but we're all, at the end of the day, we're trying to to accomplish a common goal across all the services. So is it true? Do the Air Force really get treated way better? I've heard that a couple of times, like their, their deployments are better, not necessarily better, but maybe they get better accommodations, um, better hotels on overnights and stuff when, when they're doing stuff in the States and training. Is that true or is that kind of just like a lie? Well, from my perspective, uh, in my perspective only, um, you know, I think that the Air Force deals with airplanes and, you know, drones and UAVs. Um, you know, in the Navy, we have submarines, carriers, warships, and airplanes, you know. Um, you look at the size of naval aviation uh, in general um, versus the size of the Air Force and the Air National Guard. I uh, kind of combined, um, you know, the we are very, very, very small, uh, you know, compared to those guys. Um, so when it comes time for like the, just the financial overhead, and this is just me kind of speculating on how that works. Um, but you know, our typically when you go into an air force base, you know, the buildings are all relatively new. They're constantly like upgrading their facilities and things like that. You know, Navy bases, we're getting there. Um, but we spend a lot of money on, you know, warships and submarines and airplanes 
and making sure that we are able to project that power, you know, uh, outward via the ocean uh, as we're going out and doing things. So when it comes down to like, do they have better accommodations and stuff like that? I would say overall, when I go on an Air Force base, my my living experience in the you know officers' quarters and stuff like that is typically nicer just because the facilities are newer um, and and they have more money to throw at those kind of situations where you know we have to be really really careful about you know where our money is going and direct it so we can you know stay ahead of the you know, the problem versus uh, getting behind when it comes to technology and, and assets. Absolutely. Well, cool. That's enough Navy versus Air Force talk. That we're gonna have. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not putting you on the spot for an hour. Yeah, no, <laughs> I promised you in that beginning. <laughs> uh, so let's start out with uh, why did you want to become a pilot? What was the original inspiration for you uh, wanting to jump in an airplane, go fly, and then uh, further down the line, even join the military? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my my dad was was probably uh, the the main driver uh, for for what I've done and, and to this point really uh, he uh, before I was even born my dad was was flying uh, he was a Navy pilot he went through flight school um, he actually enlisted uh, after boot camp he took an aptitude test uh, he scored pretty well on it and they needed pilots really bad so they said hey you're, you qualify to go to the Naval Academy um, so back then there was a program that essentially took guys with a high enough aptitude to send them to the Naval Academy. Uh, he went through uh, that curriculum, came out, went through flight school, and he started flying jets. He flew, you know, all the trainers back in the day, many different trainers. Um, he flew in combat in Vietnam, uh, the F-8 Crusader and the F-4 Phantom. And he did a tour with the Blue Angels also in uh, 1970 and 71. So growing up, you know, what my dad was, by the time I was born, he had me relatively late in life. Uh, he was 47. He was out of the military and, and pretty much out of the reserves. He wasn't really actively drilling anymore. Um, but, you know, he maintained, uh, I was very fortunate. He maintained uh, aviation as a hobby uh, and for a business, not necessarily business like aviation as a business, but he used it to, to manage his business. Um, so growing up, I had access to a, a couple like small general aviation airplanes, thinking things like, uh, Blanca Super Decathlons, like twin Cessna 310s, stuff like that. And we would grow up and, you know, my earliest experiences flying were, you know, with my dad sitting on a phone book so I could see over the, over the, over the instrument panel. And, you know, he's, he's letting me fly these airplanes as a kid. I can't even t- touch the, you know, the rudder pedals, you know, pretty much down to, uh, to the, to the, you know, the touchdown. And, um, you know, then I started flying. Uh, taking lessons when I was 15. I think that rule has changed. I think, you know, I think back in the day, I think I soloed when I was 15 years old, or maybe I soloed like pretty much close to my 16th birthday. I don't really remember, but I started taking flight lessons before I was 16. Um, and that's just how that went. So I had a pretty big motivator there with my dad and being exposed to aviation uh, growing up. Um, and I feel very fortunate to have that experience. Yeah, you can. So I think I don't read the the far aim like I do, like I should, or not really should. <laughs> yeah. but I'm not a CFI, but I'm pretty sure now the rule is you can solo at 16, take a private at 17, but you can still take lessons. I mean, you can take lessons when you're 11. You can log it all uh, if you're with the CFI, but you can't do anything with that time until you're 16 to solo and then private pilot at 17. Yeah, and I, I was kind of on that track. You know, I didn't start logging flight time until. Uh, you know, I started taking lessons from an instructor. My dad was very adamant. Like he did not want to teach me how to fly. Uh, and his reasoning was he didn't want to feel responsible if I was to go up and something was to happen. He didn't want to have that on his mind. I could see that. 
I also would be a terrible instructor with <laughs> with someone in my family, I feel like. So I'd be like, you'll probably learn from someone else. I'll teach you like what I know once you already have a base of what to what is actually happening. <laughs> oh yeah. And you know, just being a teenager and you know, that relationship with the you know, with the man who's also, you know, at that time he was in his late sixties. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple of generation gaps there. Where did you do your, where did you start flying? Where did I start flying? Like, would you say like taking lessons and stuff like that? No, like just uh, with your dad uh, flying around. Where did all that take place? Um, you know, there's pictures of, of me and my two younger brothers. You know, Ryan would have been one. Josh would have been two. I think I was maybe three years old of, of literally falling down these ladders of these airplanes, uh, you know, rolling onto these different FBOs, you know, starting from Charlotte, North Carolina all over the East coast, primarily raised in the East coast down in Florida. And then up, eventually up in Pennsylvania before I went off to college. Yeah. It's crazy. We were talking a couple of weeks ago when we were trying to sell us up and your brother went to the same high school as me, right? Yeah. And we go to different crazy. high schools, but I, we, we lived, uh, our neighborhoods are really close to each other. That must have been Yeah. I actually forgot about that conversation, but yeah, Ryan, uh, you know, grew up in Charlotte for elementary school and came back to a little bit of middle school, but, uh, then my, you know, family things happened. My younger brother ended up staying with my mom and my middle brother and I ended up staying with my dad. And, uh, Ryan actually went to Providence high school right there in Charlotte. Yeah. So we went to the same high school. school. (laughs) That's crazy. That's insane. When did he graduate? Oh man. He would have graduated in 2000. He would have graduated in 2004 or five and he played lacrosse there. Okay. Yeah. That was it. So he would have known my brother. My brother graduated in 2004. Crazy. Such a small world. That is such a small world, man. And I think our neighborhoods were literally less than a mile away from each other. <laughs> which I is know. Insane. Yeah. I was right there in Providence Plantation. So yeah, I, I grew up right by the Arboretum in Hempstead. So there we yeah. go. <laughs> Wild. <laughs> Nut. That's cool, man. All right. Well, back to your story. Um, when, I guess the better question to ask is, was there anything that competed with your idea of being a pilot? Was there anything else that was kind of taking your attention away? We're like, well, I kind of want to play football. I want to play this. I want to be a professional of this or a chef or anything like that? Or was it just, I want to be a pilot. I want to serve my country. You know, when I was a little kid, I, like, and this sounds so cliche, but I remember like, we didn't watch a lot of TV and our parents didn't let us like play a lot of video games. And we were always forced to play outside. Um, but I always remember like watching Top Gun, you know, uh, I don't think that was like the driver for me. Obviously it was my dad, but you know, just, just seeing that and, not really knowing exactly what that was. I just know from a very young age, my mom always told me and my dad always told me that I always said I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I don't remember saying that, um, you know, but there was nothing ever really competed with that urge. Um, you know, I kind of, I kind of took a very different route to becoming a, um, a fighter pilot or a naval officer than I would say probably 95% of the people that, um, that I work with and that I fly with. Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, after high school, I, um, went to college down at Ember Riddle, Daytona beach, you know, the Harvard of the skies as they call it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I did that for about a year and a half. Uh, and I did, I was doing initially I started off an aerospace engineering major and I absolutely hated it. Um, so I switched majors to uh, aeronautical science, the professional pilot uh, program down there, ended up flying. And then, you know, I just kind of was kind of like a lost dog for a little bit. Um, you know, I, I remember like wanting to be a fighter pilot so bad, but I was kind of off track. I had applied for the Naval Academy and I didn't get in. Um, so after that, I left Embry-Riddle, worked for about two years, uh, just doing odd jobs, bartending, working in restaurants, just kind of 
you know, not really being able to find, you know, my direction and how I was going to get this done. Um, and finally, you know, I think it was my dad or maybe it was my mom. They're like, why don't you just join the Navy in general, like as an enlisted sailor um, and see what opportunities can come out of that. So, you know, I thought about it and that was the direction that I went. I ended up going down the recruiter. I told them that I wanted to be involved in aviation. Uh, they wanted me to be on a submarine because I scored really high on their aptitude test. Uh, I told them I was gonna. I told them I was gonna walk out of here unless they gave me something in aviation. I don't care what it was. I just want to be around airplanes. Um, and the only thing they had at that time was rescue swimmer. I had no idea what that was. Uh, what I came out to find out it would be is I was going to be in the back of a helicopter and jumping out into the ocean uh, and you know saving people that you know needed help uh, out in the middle of the ocean. Whether whether or not that's a fighter pilot who had ejected, we trained a lot for that. Um, or just general search and rescue, coastal search and rescue with boats that are sinking and things like that. Um, so I did that for about six years. That was a very, very intense period of my life with the training, the physical fitness requirements, uh, and things like that. And so after that was complete, I, uh, got sent to my first helicopter squadron, um, out of Jacksonville, Florida, uh, Mayport Naval Station in Jacksonville, Florida. And when I got there, uh, you know, I quickly learned that I was not going to be doing much search and rescue. Uh, they put a bunch of machine guns uh, in front of us and they said, you're going to be a door gunner also. Um, and you're going to go out there. And we're going to do my first deployment uh, when I joined the squadron was uh, straight over to the uh, coast of Mo- uh, Somalia. Uh, and we were doing the, the anti-piracy operations, thinking like uh, Captain Phillips uh, the with the helos and stuff out there. We were doing that kind of stuff out there trying to prevent these uh, commercial shipping vessels from getting uh, getting overtaken by pirates. Uh, so there was a lot of, you know, very busy time in my life. Where I'm getting at with this is, you know, while I was doing this, I was secretly applying to a program in the Navy that uh, it's called Seaman Navarro. And it takes uh, enlisted sailors um, that, you know, pass all the prerequisites such as um, you know, physical fitness requirements. They have good paperwork, good recommendations from their commanding officers, um, and look like they have the aptitude to do it with like SAT scores and things like that. Um, and they take you and they, they put you back in college, pay for it, uh, with a guaranteed contract of whatever job you want to do, you know, assuming that you finish. So of course I chose pilot and I applied, uh, the first year I was selected as an alternate, uh, in the second year, uh, I was selected as a primary selectee. So I was immediately taken off of the, uh, out of my squadron, uh, and went back to Ember Riddle down in Daytona Beach, uh, for two more years of school that had to go full time, summers included. Uh, and I was affiliated with the ROTC unit there as kind of a, um, not like a ROTC student, but, you know, I was, I was checking with their commanding officers. He was my boss. And then after two years there, I, graduated from college commissioned as an officer i think this either the same day or the next day and then i was off to flight school that quickly so you definitely had kind of an up and down um pass to get to where you are today like there's a lot of lows there's a lot of highs right there's a lot of lows uh there's a lot of a lot of highs you know i feel very fortunate to be here um you know it it was it was a grind you know most most guys you know they go to college or they go to high school uh, they do really well. They go to the Naval Academy or they go to a school of their choice. They crush it for three or four years. And then they right off the flight school. Um, by the time I was, I started flight school, I was, 
I think I was 28 years old, uh, which is six years older than most of the guys that are, that are going to flight school. Yeah. Cause my, like you said, 95% of the people I know or that, you know, uh, that are where you are today, probably, like you said, killed it in high school. They knew they wanted to be a fighter pilot since they were three and did everything they could. Um, I had a buddy who, when he was in like, we were in kindergarten together and he did show and tell or something. He brought like a Navy fighter pilot. He's like, this is what I'm going to do. And he actually did it. He went to the Naval Academy and he was a pilot and now he's flying helicopters. He switched from fixed wing to helicopters and he's out in uh, San Diego right now. Um, Nice. He, yeah, I was always on the impression that if you didn't get in that way, like that's it, you know, there's nothing else you can do. So it's really awesome to hear that I mean, if you put in the work, obviously, and you make it happen and you got to grind it out for a couple of years, but there's still an opportunity. There's still a way for you to fulfill your career. Yeah. And that, that's my biggest thing because I do get questions a lot of times, especially when I was doing the air shows with the F-35. Um, I get questions all the time from kids like asking me how to become a fighter pilot. Um, what do I got to do to be able to do this? And, you know, I don't tell them, you know, my whole story. Um just because I think that there's a better way to do it. Um, I typically tell them, you know, get good grades in school, go to a college or go to the, go to one of the service academies and, and get your pilot slot from there. And now, if somebody comes up to me and, and they're already in the service and they want to do that, then I, then I kind of tell that individual, my individual story. Um, cause there is still a way for you to do that. If you know, your original plan be, kind of becomes derailed for whatever reason that is. Yeah, I think it's great to to highlight that, to highlight your story because I I mean, this is just me from the outside looking in. I feel like so many people, I mean, a lot of people apply to the academies and they don't get in and they kind of give it up. They're like, "Up, oh, that's it." But if this is what you really feel like you're called to do, uh there has been a proven success path. Uh if you're the only one, I don't know if there's others, but there's been <laughs> no, there's people. There's, yeah. there's absolutely others. Well, then um, good, then that means it is a proven way for you to still do it. Now is it harder? Possibly, but it's a uh, you can still do it. And I think that's great because so many people just give up on their dream right then and there. And it's just, they, they don't think they can do that. So I think it's really important to highlight that there's still a chance you can still do this. Yeah. And that I quickly learned um, that, you know, there was a lot of hard work, especially like trying to come up through the ranks and apply for these programs that don't have a lot of selection rates. But if you just put your head down and you grind through it, um, there's, there's where there's a will, there's a way. It sounds kind of cliche, but I mean, that is a fact, and I believe that wholeheartedly. What was the support of um, your your current squadron that you're in, you know, the officers you're reporting to? Obviously, if they have someone that's really good and is really good at their job, I'm sure there's a little bit of a hesitancy for them to want you to leave. Would you run into any of that, or is everyone like, no, nah, man, you're meant for the sky. Like, we'll make this happen. Were you talking about when I was doing, uh, when I was a, like a... Yeah. Uh, an air crewman? Yeah, when you're applying for, for uh, flight school or for that slot for you to go back to school. Yeah, so that's actually kind of a funny story. Um, when I got to my first squadron uh, of helicopters right there uh, at Naval, uh, Naval Station Mayport, my, you know, and my, enli- my enlisted superiors, my master chief, not the, not the officers, but my direct supervisors, like the higher ranking enlisted individuals, uh, they came up and asked me what I wanted to do. <laughs> uh, I didn't hold back. I told them I was like, as soon as possible, I want to become a pilot. Uh, so let's make this happen. Uh, they didn't really, uh, I should have done that differently. Um, they, they, they wanted me to be a rescue swimmer for 30 years in the Navy. Uh, if they could, um, you know, our manning at that point wasn't too great. So they, they want to get every ounce of energy out of me as they could before I applied for these programs. 
Uh, and I, I did a good job for those guys. Um, but you know, my direct superiors were, were kind of against it. So when I, I'll never forget this. When I put in my, you have to put in a, essentially a request to be able to apply for these, these kind of programs. And it goes all the way up your chain of command. And I'm, I'm just the low man on the totem pole. So it goes to your, uh, your leading, you know, petty officer, you know, your, your shop chief up to the master chief. And then eventually it gets to your division officer. Now these guys are pilots, uh, you know, the XO of the squadron executive officer and eventually the commanding officer. And I'll never forget what the chit said. Like, you know, it was denied all the way up uh, from all of my enlisted superiors uh, until it got uh, to my division officer, my executive officer and CEO who all recommended yes. Um, so that that was kind of an uphill battle I had to fight, um, you know, getting to this point. I understand where they were coming from, but it was definitely a, an unexpected hurdle uh, along the way, but I, I also understand it. You know, those guys, they have, you know, we are a number, they need us to do a job. And, uh, you know, however, I tried not to let that, uh, impact my ability to, to go off and become a pilot. If you were to, let's say, you know, you get your 20 years, uh, you never got that pilot slot. You aren't where you are today. You're still, uh, swimming in the ocean, saving people doing all that. Um, would you have felt fulfilled for those 20 years? Would you have been happy with the career of that? Or would you have always been like, what could have been? Oh, I would have absolutely uh, always thought about, you know, what, what could have been. Um, I'll never forget, like, you know, we, typically the type of helicopter squadron we were on, we were on the destroyers and the cruisers that typically accompany these aircraft carriers. And I'll never forget, you know, every time I went outside, you know, when we were near the aircraft carrier, uh, and seeing the jets coming in, uh, you know, doing their thing or launching off at nighttime, just looking like, you know, fireballs going into the sky, uh, out in the middle of the ocean. I was always, uh, I would, I would have definitely had, um, you know, some, some thoughts about, you know, could I have still done this or why, why did that never happen for me? Um, but I try, you know, it happened. So I, I actually never really thought about that too much. Um, but there definitely would have been some regret, I think. But I think, uh, you know, the guys that I worked with when I was a rescue swimmer, some of those guys are still my best friends today. Um, you know, a lot of them went off to do bigger and better things. I got a good buddy of mine, uh, you know, the same time I got picked up for pro for the you know pilot program, he went to explosive ordnance disposal. And now he's working with, uh, you know, SEAL Team 6 in Virginia Beach uh, on their teams. Um, a lot of guys also want to become pilots uh, as well. But these were just awesome, awesome individuals. And we were really young. We were 22, 23, 24 years old at the time. And some of those guys were younger than me. Um, so we were just having a great time, you know, together as, you know, as, as buddies. And then, you know, it's just cool to see everybody moving on and doing bigger and better things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm glad it all worked out. I mean it's it's awesome to see how you didn't give up how you saw the <laughs> were pretty much told no i mean like you said like even when you got you were applying to that everyone above you was saying no like we need you here until it worked up to the right person and you got the right eyes on it and they said yes and it's crazy to think that so many other people can hold your career like but what you can do is in their hands like there's nothing you could have done about that you know there's yeah there's so much red tape that you know that's involved and, uh, and you, you really have to make the relationships with the people who matter. Um, and the people who matter like are typically like going to be the, the commanding officers and the executive officers and the, the people at the higher levels. So if they see you doing a good job, uh, typically they're willing to help you out. At least I think that kind of applies to not just in the military, but maybe outside the military as well. 
Um, you know, you don't want to, you know, bypass the chain of command by any means that can get you in trouble. But, you know, you always want to put down, you know, a good face when you're, you're working for anybody really, uh, so that they can't, you can't give them any reason for them to say no. Right. Absolutely. Now let's say someone's listening to this and they're in a very similar position to you. What kind of advice would you give? So if someone was in my position, I would tell them to be, be proactive. I would tell them to get ahead of uh, whatever problem they're trying to solve right now and just, just keep the main thing, the main thing. Uh, always keep, you know, what that goal is on the horizon. Uh, don't let it ever go out of sight and then do everything in your power, whether it's school, you know, physical fitness, uh, getting yourself ready for the next challenge or next series of events that could potentially derail your goal and try not to uh, try not to let those things that could derail you uh, become, you know, causal factors for why you didn't become successful. That would that would really be it. Um, and then just just make sure that, like, if there's a challenge in front of you, you, you take that challenge, dissect it, uh, disseminate it, compartmentalize it and then really, um, you know, put the pieces back together and forge a path. that's going to let you get to where you need to be. I love it. So let's say, let's go back to where you got accepted. Uh, you're going back to Embry-Riddle. What did you go back to school for? Uh, so again, this is, this is all some of the challenges I had. So I was quickly approaching the maximum age to being a pilot. Uh, yeah, so I was, you know, in the Navy, it's 27 years old, waivers to 29. Um, and I was 26 years old. So I was immediately put on an age waiver and I had to essentially speed through uh, the entire, you know, know, four year curriculum uh, in two years. So I was taking a lot of courses and stuff like that. But, you know, I had to choose a a degree program that would get me out the door the fastest and one that also took my previous as many of my previous school credits as I had and applied them towards a degree. So down at Embry-Riddle, I I majored in uh, uh, aeronautics with a minor in uh, homeland security. Okay. Yep. And that school, you know, like hats off to them. They, they knew that I was on the timeline. I was working very closely with their, the scheduling office, uh, and the, and, and the ladies in the offices that were managing my timeline and they did uh, a really good job for getting me out and, and making sure that I wasn't going to have any issues make, making that timeline of, of not commissioning prior to my 29th birthday. Did you ever think that you weren't going to get it? Do you ever think like there's one moment where like, you know, it's just impossible. I can't do all this in two years. Um, you know, when we started because, you know, my degree program it did not uh, it did not force me to take, you know, engineering level calculus and physics. Uh, but as part of the, the Seaman Avro program, um, uh, the, the Navy mandated that I had to take engineering level calculus and physics, you know, multiple courses of it. Um, and I remember I haven't done any math or physics since, you know, you know, two, 2002 and it's now 2008. Um, and so when I started getting those classes and, and looking what was on the board and there were no numbers, it was all variables. Uh, I was like, I'm, I could potentially be in trouble here. Um, but you know, I did the, after hours tutoring sessions, one-on-ones with the the professors and eventually got the speed where it just be, kind of became like anything else, uh, second nature, just, just rocketed through there. So you put in the work, like you said, there's a way to, there, there's a will, there's a way pretty much what you're saying before, right? Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. believe it to this day. Absolutely. I love it. I mean, you, you're clearly walking that you walk the walk and talk the talk. So, I mean, you can, you can definitely believe that. That's awesome. Um, so you finished up your school. Um, you are going to flight school. What was the next process after you finished at Embry-Riddle? 
Um, did you report somewhere to start flight training? Did you, you already had some flight training. Did that count toward anything or was it zero to hero all over again? Yeah. So, uh, the only thing the Navy applies previous flight training towards is whether or not they're going to give you 10 hours in a Cessna or Piper Archer or something very similar to that. Um, so right after commissioning, went to Pensacola, Florida, just like every Navy student pilot does, you know, would do about six to eight weeks of, uh, you know, just general navigation, aircraft systems, aerodynamics. And that's just a weeding out, like, you know, uh, you know, they give you information by the fire hose, expect you to go home and study and, you know, come back and pass these tests. And, you know, the crazy part about it is like, you know, not a lot of people fail all that, but enough they're just like, what are you doing here, man? Um, but yeah, so after that's complete or before that, depending on, you know, where you are on the conga line of students down there, um, if you don't, if you never had any aviation background, you don't have your license, uh, the Navy gives you 10 hours paid at a local airfield and you go out and, you know, go up in a 172 or, you know, a, a PA-28 and, you know, beat up the pattern for a week and then you solo and then you come back to start flight school again. Um, I, I, the only thing that I had to do, I, I was able to skip that because I already had my, my private and my instrument by that time. Were you still fresh with flying though, or did you take a lot of time off? So was it like, oh man, I could actually really use those 10 hours right now. <laughs> well, I was pretty fresh when it came to flying, uh, you know, as a hobby when I was in school. You know, Edinburgh Riddle, you know, if you're familiar with it, um, there, it's a big aviation school. Um, and I got I was pretty heavily involved with a, a club called Eagle Sport Aviation, which still which still exists today. And we would take uh, pit specials or a pit special, um, you know, to different air to different you know airports and contests. And I competed with the International Aerobatic Club for a little while. Um, I actually bought uh, a little single seat pits S1E. Uh, and and flew that uh, for two years while I was there at school when I could, when I could and didn't interfere with like everything else I had going on. But once I started flight school, I knew that was me bouncing around uh, all over the country, and I didn't want to have the distraction of having to haul you know an airplane you know around with me. So um, so I, was, I think I was relatively current, but you know in, when you're talking about you know an airplane that weighs 700 pounds like the pits, and then you know to the airplanes that you're going to start flying in flight school with a lot more power. Know that they suck down, you know, jet fuel. Um, you know, it's definitely good to have that background, I would say. Um, but kind of like Rain alluded to in his interview, uh, you know, guys sometimes bring in those bad habits or you know that 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 poor mindset in, and and that can affect you as well if you don't if you don't manage your personal program. Was flight school everything you thought it'd be, and then more? Um, when I say that, like. There's some horror stories you hear about. I'm sure they try to psych you out before you get there. Like everyone usually tells like how crazy it is. Was it as intimidating, as hard, or just all the above? Or was it a little bit easier and uh, more approachable, I guess is the right word? Like, what, was it easier than you thought it was going to be? And was it not as like much as them yelling at you and taking you off and all that kind of stuff? Or are you taking them off, I should say? Yeah, you know, I was definitely, there was a, level, a high level of excitement going into flight school because you want to do well, you know, and... And you want to come out of there with whatever aircraft you want to fly, whether it's, you know, carrier based fighters or helicopters or, you know, patrol aircraft like the P8 and P3s. Um, so when you get there, you get, you know, I went down to Corpus Christi, Texas. We start flying the T34 Seed Turbo Mentor. Um, you know, and when it, you don't really have a relationship with your instructors too much. Um, you can, you're a second class citizen and, and the way you have to prove yourself before those guys are going to open arms and, 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 and bring you into the, the good old boys club. Um, so this whole process, 
is designed to be high stress. It's designed to be fast paced. You know, you have an event or sims or multiple events and sims every day. And by event, I mean like flight. Um, and, and you're just constantly trying to stay ahead of the curve and do your best. And, you know, hopefully, you know, at the end, they call it a naval standard score, NSS uh, for short. Uh, hopefully you, you, you meet the bar and your naval standard score puts you in the category where you can essentially have your pick at the end. Uh, assuming that the Navy even has spots available for you. What was your, did you have your pick at the end or what, how did that work out for you? So at the end of, uh, you know, at the end of about, well, how long was it there? Probably about six months of initial, you know, flight school down at Corpus Christi flying the T-34. Um, you know, that they give you your, 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 your summary jacket and your, what your Naval standard score is going to be. Um, and I was very fortunate to, you know, to be towards the top of the Naval standard scores for the guys who are in my class. Um, and the Navy also needed jet pilots uh, in a bad way at that time because we were just recovering from sequestration. Um, you know, there was a pilot shortage, which we still kind of have right now. Um, and, you know, if, if you if you even met the bar at that time, the very the lowest number, uh, typically you were going to go be a jet pilot just because they needed the, us to refill the spots in the fleet that were no longer there. When you... So, when you were there, when you first started, you were older than everyone, like you said. Uh, was that a disadvantage? Do you think that was an advantage? Did they kind of give you a hard time for that? Or is it just kind of like, oh, look, everyone's here. We're going to make it work. You know, I've, I've often thought about this. You know, I think it was an advantage because I was more along the same age of the my flight instructors. Um, so I was very lucky to have my first flight instructor, my on-wing, like is what the Navy calls it, is the guy you, for, you do your first, you know, five to 10 flights with in, in, in the aircraft. And, and we actually have very, very common background. He was also an enlisted sailor who did a, a commissioning program. Um, so having that kind of, you know, it's not like best friend relationship, but it's like, Hey, we, we, we have a common ground here. Uh, and he also told me like, before I even got in the airplane, he's like, what do you want to fly? And I said, I want to fly F-18s. Uh, and he said, all right. He's like, I'm not here to tell you, you can't do that, but like, you know, just put in the work and, you know, I'll, I'll I'll do my part. Like if you're, if you're crushing it, like we'll, we'll grade you accordingly. Um, so, but when it comes to my peers, that that's when I would say that it was kind of, it was kind of a, a challenge because, you know, I was, I was six years older than a lot of these guys um, uh, with a little bit, you know, different experiences than they had. You know, most, like I said, 95% of these guys, maybe more uh, did the traditional route of, you know, looking, going to college, uh, you know, right out of high school and finishing up RTC, OCS or whatever uh, service academy they went to. Um, so, you know, I got along really well with a lot of those guys, but I think I was kind of like the gramps of the group, like the old guy. But uh, I tried to maintain that 22 year old spirit. You know, anytime anybody was like, hey, let's go drink you know, beers, I would lead, lead the charge, uh, you know, to, to whatever bar we we're going to go to, whatever watering hole was the, the place we we're going to go for the night. That's so, hard, man. When you're like 28 and they're 22, like, it's not the same you know you can't just wake up and recover so that had to been tough yeah ibuprofen and water was my best friend for a couple years (laughs) (laughs) that's funny uh i've asked you this question a couple times but uh now where you are right now we're talking about in training was there anything in any point where you're like i can't do it this is is not going to happen uh it's either too hard i'm too old like i know you're not really old but just kind of the whole mindset game or were you just like i'm so close to this i'm gonna be an F-18 pilot and I'm going to make it happen no matter what. So the first time I ever really thought that I was going to potentially have an issue was actually when I uh, had selected F-18. So I left Corpus Christi, gone down to Kingsville, Texas to fly the T-45, uh, the Goshawk, 
uh, the Navy jet trainer has a tail hook. We take that out to the boat, you know, that, that process, while it was very, very busy, um, and very, you know, I thought it was a challenge just because now you're flying things that are, are going very fast uh, as compared to, you know, even the T-34 or anything else I've ever, ever flown before. Um, you know, but I, I remember that, that time period being busy, but I also remember we had a really, really good support group, like the guys in our class, we were always just sharing information, always, always, you know, trying to help each other out to the max extent practical and get, just got through it together. It's just kind of a weeding out process. But at the end of that, um, that's where you decide, you know, if you're going to go fly growlers, uh, the EA 18 growler or the, at least at the time period or the E2D Hawkeye that the turboprop airplane with the, uh, the big radar dish on the top you'll see on the air carriers or, or the F-18 as a strike fighter pilot, uh, the Super Hornet. So, um, it wasn't until I got to the Super Hornet training squadron, uh, in, uh, in Oceana, Virginia Beach, Virginia, uh, where I started, you know, realizing, okay, like quickly here, you know, the skills that I developed, you know, growing up and flying, they, they, they don't exist anymore. Like this is, this is a completely different beast altogether. Um, and that's, that's when I started really feeling the push, um, going back to the, to the Gossock to T45s real quick, I would say, you know, getting ready to take the, that's, that's when you take an airplane out to the carrier for the first time, uh, right at the end of that training, you take the T45, uh, you know, typically one of the instructor pilots leads you out to the boat, uh, for the overhead break. Uh, and then after that, you're on your own, uh, and it's on you to come to a stop and, you know, not scare yourself or put anybody on the flight deck yourself and, or the aircraft in, in a dangerous position. I can't imagine what it's like the first time you're getting ready to go land on an aircraft carrier. Uh, man, I, I, you know, there's a couple choice words I want to use, but I want to blow up your podcast, but I was, uh, <laughs> uh, I was, uh, you know, I was pretty nervous going out there. Um, and you know, then after your first couple landings or touching, go, like you do a couple touch and goes, so you don't put your hook up, you don't put your hook down, excuse me, uh, right off the bat. Um, but you know, to be honest, it was, I, I was so amped up. I don't really remember much of it at all. Uh, it just is kind of out there on, on STEM power, just doing what they train me to do just over and over again, uh, on, on a long runway. And now you're just going out there and just trying not to look at anything, but you know, the scan that they told us to do to make sure that you are on the proper glide slope coming down, uh, to catch a wire and bring the jet to a stop. And it was very fast. It was very stressful. I remember that. Uh, but I also don't remember ever feeling like I couldn't do it because I felt like I had done enough, you know, practice, whether it was in the simulators or at the field to make that happen. What's the hardest part about, I mean, so many of the people that listen to this or even myself uh, will never have the opportunity to train on aircraft carrier, to land on an aircraft carrier. What's the hardest part about landing on aircraft carrier? The hardest part, and this is, this is very subjective. Um, but you know, you are, you're looking at something that is, if you stood at it, you know, on the pier next to an aircraft carrier, you're like, this thing is absolutely monstrous. It is huge. Right. Um, but when you're trying to land on it at this, you know, the speeds you're coming in, um, you know, it, it looks very, very, very small. Um, the hardest part is, you know, it used to be before we got, you know, magic carpet and precision landing modes, we were doing most of all the, the corrections manually with the, with the stick and the throttle and trying to maintain the aircraft at its appropriate angle of attack. Um, initially, when you're starting, you know, learning how, learning how to do this, 
was probably the most challenging part because it's very, very crucial that you are on the correct speed coming in um, or you can quickly find yourself uh, in a bad situation uh, there. Additionally, the aircraft carrier is moving. Uh, not only is it moving forward, but because of the angle deck, it's moving forward through the water and to the right. So you're constantly like when you think you're on lineup and your scan breaks down between, you know, the glide slope you know, uh, that we use with the, the ball or the eye flaws. Uh, you, you are constantly making corrections for lineup because the boat isn't just moving away from you. It's moving away from you and to the right. Um, so it's, it's pretty challenging then, you know, when you first start doing CQ out there, the weather has to be essentially perfect. Um, when you're doing, you know, CQ later in the Super Hornet, it, you know, we can accept ceiling. When I say CQ, that's carrier qualifications. Uh, we were able to accept, uh, you know, weather down to 700 feet overcast. Um, but the second that that's over and you, you qualify, uh, you know, you, you'll find yourself, you know, a few times uh, to zero, zero or very close to zero, zero coming in and landing on the boat. And you can't even see it. And we're relying on what we call landing signal officers uh, to to help us out when we when the conditions, the sea states, you know, start getting really bad. Um, when the boat starts rocking and rolling, like so pitch like the nose and the nose of the boat's going up and down, uh, roll. So it's rolling left and right. And we're also accounting for heave. So the whole boat moving up and down in the water, uh, all together, uh, are the three axes. If we're really trying to solve the problem, we're buying the boat. Um, and it can get pretty gnarly, uh, out there with some big sea states, nighttime, uh, and weather. And to be honest, it, it can get, you know, there's still times today, this day, and I've done it. And go over 300 times now where you get out of the jet and you're, you're just shaking uncontrollably because you're like, that was, I don't get paid enough for that. <laughs> yeah. I had a few moments of that when I flew freight, but I'm sure any kind of moment that I had <laughs> is nowhere near <laughs> what it's like, <laughs> what you're just explaining. You would have gotten out and be like, oh, let's go do it again. We're good, man. <laughs> well, and so that's the funny part about it is you don't really have a say. So like if you, let's just say like, you know, the weather this is just the kind of the dynamic on an aircraft carrier. It's it's it, it's just the way we operate. Um, but you know, if you're out there on the on the on the catapult and you're looking outside, and you're like, this is nuts. Like, why are we launching every two seconds? I'm seeing the bow of the water slam down into these waves, and and oh, by the way, there's a thunderstorm like two miles off the bow that we're about to be in, and or they're just or it's just like a, a fog bank. Like you can't you can't just be like come over the radio and talk to Air Boss and be like, hey, sir, I, I don't think I'm gonna do this. Uh, when you're down there and, and your name's on the schedule, uh, you go out and execute and you just kind of fall back on your training uh, and, and, and what, you, what, you've been, what you've done to this point, your experience to make sure that when it's time to come back and land on the boat, you put on that, that hat uh, and you, you just put yourself on the right piece of sky and, 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 and just execute. That's just kind of the way we operate in the Navy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's great. Uh, I guess one good thing is that you'll climb up above thunderstorms, maybe, or maybe I don't know if you can, you can't go that high, or maybe you can. I don't know. I don't know enough about fighter pilots, to be honest with you, but you can get out of the way pretty quickly. I would imagine, right? Oh yeah. So like typically, you know, we it's kind of a joke, but it kind of seems like it's really real. Like the aircraft carriers, you know, we, they always have to be like pointed into the wind, right? So the captain of the ship is constantly like, you know, turning left or turning right, trying to put the the aircraft carrier into the wind so we can launch the jets and then subsequently recover the jets that are already airborne. Um, so, but you know, it just seems like if there's one thunderstorm uh, out there and it's like, you know, over here to the left, we know if 
if it's about to be recovery time, for some reason, the ship's going to point right towards it and we're going to go end up flying right through it. I don't know if, the, I don't know if what the, you know, the weather guys would say about that. I don't know if like the wind kind of comes down out of the thunderstorm and then out, but you know, it just seems like if there's a rainstorm to be found, the carrier is really, really good at finding it uh, or, or so it would seem because we find ourselves in some pretty uh, ridiculous weather out there a lot of times. Yeah. When you have a moment like that when you get off and you're shaking, how long do you usually have to recover? Is it like you just go get like 10 hours of rest and you're right back up? Or is it, all right, that was a little bit more intense. We'll give you like a day off. You know, typically uh, you have about the time uh, to get to down into the ready room uh, and take your flight gear off because then you're right into your debrief. Um, you know, and those, those debriefs, depending on what the mission was, can last anywhere from, you know, 30 minutes to, uh, you know, I think the longest debrief I ever had was like 12 hours. Holy smokes. Uh, yeah, that, that was for my that was for my section lead uh, qualification, uh, section combat lead. So, you know, two jets taking him into a combat situation. But that uh, that first debrief that I had for that event was was easily a 12 hour push. And it was I was I was cross eyed by the end of, by the end by the time. We yeah. yeah, I can't imagine talking to someone for 12 hours in general, you know, and be like, all right, man, like yeah, that was really bad. But I need like a, a couple of days <laughs> off to get away from you right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that. That is not the norm. That is that is that is typically our debriefs last anywhere from you know from about an hour to two hours. Um, but then you know it's time to either go back up and do it again, or you know call it a night, grab some chow, and then head down to your your stateroom. So let's talk about progression of where you are. You're talking about um, getting checked out on the aircraft carrier, uh, landing by yourself. What has been kind of your progression to where you are right now? So my current. Uh, my current job description right now is uh, I work for the so on the aircraft carrier. There's there's two main guys. There's the there's the captain of the ship. His uh, his rank is typically is, is a captain. Um, he's in charge of the ship, uh, its equipment and its people. Uh, and then the other guy on the the other you know main individual on the boat is the carrier air group commander. Uh, he owns. We typically call him CAG. He owns all. When I say owns, he is. You know, he has been he is in charge of how we're going to utilize these airplanes and what we're going to do with them and the people. Um, so basically, he has all the F-18 squadrons underneath him, all the helicopter squadrons, the Hawkeye squadrons uh, and all the people uh, associate with people and associated people and equipment associated with uh, each of these these different squadrons and different types of aircraft. So uh, my direct boss right now is, is CAG. I work for him and I'm a uh, carrier air wing landing signal officer. So uh, I'm in charge. I'm the guy that's in the back of the boat now, um, helping these guys, uh, get, you know, down through like bad weather. Uh, if they have emergencies and stuff like that, making sure that, you know, they land on the wires, uh, get out of the jet and are able to do that, uh, another day. Um, with that responsibility, uh, now I get to fly, multiple different airplanes. So I'm currently flying the F-35. I'm actually in San Diego right now, uh, flying the F-35. Uh, this week, I'm going to take going out in the Abe Lincoln on Friday, USS uh, Abraham Lincoln. And then uh, and then I also fly the F-18 uh, as well. And hopefully uh, here at the end of the year, I'll, I'll get my growler qualification. So I'll fly the E-18. So when I'm underway uh, on the carrier wing on deployment in January, uh, I will do one day uh, that I will like stand the LSO responsibility. So I'll be out there talking to the pilots, making sure that, you know, everything's safe. Uh, when they call the ball, I'm the guy, we're the guys that typically say Roger ball. And then any, 
fillers that needed to be put them in the right piece of sky so they don't hit the back of the boat or, or hurt themselves. And then the next day, I will hop into one of those jets and go do missions uh, wherever whatever they need me to do. Um, so it's kind of uh, it's kind of an awesome spot to be in. I think this is probably uh, the only time in my career where I'll be able to simultaneously fly uh, more than one type model series of aircraft. That's insane. I mean, a lot of people say like, yeah, I can fly a 206. I can fly a 310. I can fly, let's get a little crazy, maybe a PC-12 too, like all concurrently. But you're talking about like super fast. I mean, F-35, like super capable. So many like just, I can't even imagine what it's like flying that. How do you, how can you manage three different fighter pilot or fighter, fighter planes, fighter jets? Like, how do you, is it very similar to just taking it down to like, it's no different than like a 172 to a, a 206 to a, a multi-engine plane, or is it a lot harder with these kind of aircraft that you're flying? So the general, we call it admin. It's like the general admin of flying these airplanes. When I talk about that, it's like running the checklists and, you know, getting in, starting it up, taxing it, taking off and landing. While yes, the F-35, the stick is you know a side stick, and the F-18 is a you know the stick between your legs. Um, you know, general general admin is is different, but it's you know you you get the airplane turned on, you make sure that it's ready to go, and you take off and land. Um, you know that takes some getting used to. I, I still when I when I hop into these airplanes, uh, I'm constantly putting like when I start taxiing, I always do the control wipeout just to make sure all my controls are good to go. Uh, especially at nighttime when I can't see where the stick's at half the time I'm, I'm reaching for the wrong place. Like, you know, I'm reaching for the wrong one. I'm in an F 35. I'll try to reach for the stick between my legs. And when I get in the F 18, I reach for the, the side stick. Uh, you know, it's, 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 and then you just kind of laugh at yourself and you're like, okay, like, you know, this is, this is one of the, the pitfalls of, of doing this, but you know, then you just, you fall back in your training. Like I flew the F 18 for six years. Uh, so I got out of training, went to Japan. I was stationed, uh, uh, Right outside of Tokyo at uh, Atsugi Air Base, and then eventually Iwakuni Marine Corps Air Station. Um, and I did three deployments with the F-18 there, so I flew the F-18 for five or six years. Um, and then after that was that tour was complete, um, I got picked up to be an F-35 instructor pilot. So I went back to Lamore Naval Air Station uh, here in Central Valley, California, and uh, spent you know I think it was six or seven months transitioning to the F-35. And then I spent the next uh, two and a half years instructing guys on it uh, and eventually built the uh, the air show demo that the Navy's utilizing now. Um, and now I'm, I'm, I'm doing the job that I do now. So I left instructing uh, and I'm now getting ready to go on deployment. And that's kind of the Navy's process. You do three years of deployed service, and three years of what they call shore duty. So it's like sea duty, shore duty rotations. And that's how they, they, they manage their people so you don't get too burnt out. That's crazy. Yeah. What's it? Which one would you rather fly? If you had to choose right now, you have two planes right there. Which one are you going for? Oh man. It doesn't depend get... on a mission, just whatever one, uh, what would you choose? I would go with the F-35. Okay. Yeah. How cool is the F-35 as cool as I think it is to fly? Uh, you know, I love it. Uh, the, the capabilities on the aircraft and, and where it's going with its continual software upgrades and, uh, armament upgrades. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the wave of the future for the next, you know, at least, you know, 15 or 20 years as far as, uh, as far as naval aviation is concerned. Yeah. We have the NGAD, which is like the sixth generation fighter coming out, uh, pretty soon. Not really sure how the Navy plans on utilizing that. Um, but when it comes to comparing like the F-18 
and or you know or fourth generation aircraft like the F-16, F-15s to to the F-35 or the the F-22. Um, the way I kind of like like couch that is for what we've been doing in the Middle East, you know, for the last you know over 20 years, you know, since September 11th and, and even before that Desert Storm and all that. Um, typically, we're not really getting shot at. I know you know Rain mentioned you know, small arms fire and stuff like that. But typically like we're not like in a Vietnam scenario where they're just launching surface to air missiles, like 20 at a time at your airplane. Um, that's not what we're doing over there. What we're doing over there is we're, you know, we are dropping a lot of bombs, but it's typically what the term we talk, call is uncontested. Um, and basically what that means is like we own the skies and no one's shooting at us. And therefore we can now focus our efforts on, you know, making it rain from the sky to help our ground forces, whether or not that special, you know, special operators or, you know, just really any troops on the ground uh, over there doing that kind of stuff. So um, when it comes to that mission, those fourth generation aircrafts, like aircraft like the F-16, 15, F-18, Super Hornet, uh, you know, they're they're more than capable for executing that mission. Um, But however, things change when you start talking about, you know, near peer adversaries like China, Russia, uh, and some other countries out there, because we know if God forbid that ever pops off, uh, their, their surface air missile systems are, are most likely going to be, uh, too much for those four aircraft to handle on their own. Do we still train to it? Absolutely. Um, but if, if, if that ever happened, I, I want to be in the F-35 and just be as survivable as possible and cause as much, cause as much, uh, you know, havoc and chaos as I can, uh, to those guys. And that's the, really the main difference there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Jeez. I mean, <laughs> that's intense. You just had me, just, you could just talk forever about it. I'll just keep listening. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, the F-35 is is such a cool and such a, just a modern plane that it's just like, I mean, usually when you look at military, sometimes you think of like, I mean, I think like some of them are older, they look worn out, but then you see the F-35 and you're just like, holy smokes, that thing's awesome. Yeah, just uh, give the Navy about you know five years with it, and it'll look like all the other ones. Yeah, right. That's really <laughs> no, funny. in all seriousness, no, we have you know we we have a very you know, we've kind of a changed mindsets now with when dealing with the F thirty five and how we maintain it. Like we understand the importance of like making sure the airplane is remains stealthy, and that includes the maintenance that's that's associated with its coatings and, and its paint and stuff like that. Um, so, um, but yeah, I love flying it. You know, it, it's it looks super modern from the outside, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, in the inside, it's kind of different. You know, the F-18, uh, you know, there's just switches and knobs and buttons all over the cockpit, both sides, of, you know, uh, left and right of you, like in front of you. In the F-35, there's only, you know, I'm not going to try to call it the exact number here, but there's only a couple <laughs> switches in the airplane. I don't like want anyone not- from Russia listening that's trying to get a competitive <laughs> advantage, right? So don't get me I've, in trouble. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is fine. Uh, there's only a couple switches inside, like physical, you know, move the switch forward uh, type things, but everything else uh, is on, you know, our, our displays. And it's like a big iPad that's probably about, you know, I don't know the exact dimensions, but if I had to guess, it'd be like maybe, you know, 24 inches wide and about, you know, 12 inches high. And you do everything from, uh, you know, extending our fuel probe to putting our launch bar down. We're going to do all this stuff all from the glass. Everything is touchscreen. Um, and it, you know, my experience is that it works really, really well. It's very, the PVI or the pilot vehicle interface is very, very, uh, user-friendly. 
Um, and what, why that's good is, you know, when things get hot and heavy, you know, when you're out there maneuvering the aircraft, you want to be able to manipulate the weapon systems uh, very easily as well. And they did a really, really good job of doing that. So, um, you know, I feel very fortunate, you know, the Navy was the last, you know, service to, to start getting F-35s. Um, and I feel very fortunate that I was able to, to fly it and, and still am able to fly it. We'll see what big Navy has uh, in store for me here, uh, in the years to come. Um, but you know, I feel fortunate that I've had a chance to opportunity to do that. What was it like being, well, I guess I'll ask one question about being an instructor in the F-35. I don't know if this is how it is for most, uh, fighter jets, but the F-35 and the F-22, there's no dual tandem seats, right? It's just like one and done, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So your first flight in the airplane is by yourself. And I mean, you've done simulators, but I'm guessing simulator, I, I guess it probably does encompass how it really feels, but you know, it's still not being in the airplane. So your first time in the F-35, in the F-22 is all by yourself. Is that normal for most fighter jets or is, are these two the only ones? You know, I can only speak for the the other fighter, the other fighters that I've flown. And, and typically, like in the F-18, you always, you always fly a, a two-seat aircraft uh, with the with a stick in the back. So, the, uh, so that if something goes weird, the, the, the instructor pilot can grab it. Uh, that is not the case with the F-35, uh, as you can imagine. So we rely heavily on our students uh, and we, we put pressure on them to perform when they're doing their simulators um, to make sure that there's no surprises when they uh, when they get out to the jet uh, as far as what they're doing you know, to hurt themselves or the aircraft. But, you know, on their very first flight, we, we have a chase with them. So, like, you know, I, I've done many of these flights. Actually, the last flight I had as an instructor pilot was with uh, the Admiral of, of Top Gun, uh, and it was his first flight uh, in, the, in the F-35, in which it was my last instructor flight. Um, so I chased him around our working area while he was doing loops and rolls and trying to get the feel for the airplane. But I'm typically you know, a mile behind him or somewhere where I'm not going to be in their way while they're maneuvering. And I'm just following them around where they go just to make sure that, you know, nothing, they're not putting themselves in a, in a weird position that can, especially coming back to land and when we're doing like the practice landing, so they can feel how the jet works and the landing pattern and stuff like that. That's when you really have to watch out for like making sure their gears down, making sure that they're doing their landing checklist and stuff like that. I was about to say, do you guys operate? I mean, I'm sure obviously checklist, but is it like airlines, like checklist flows? Is there like a, you hit 18,000 feet, you turn off the seatbelt sign. Like, like, is it all like, do you try to do the same thing over and over and over again and have a checklist with the flows? Or is it a little more of like, you're the one on this plane, just take off and get the plane down safely? Uh, yeah. So like, I don't reference the checklist unless I need to reference the checklist. Like if I'm troubleshooting or something like that, by the time you've done so many sims and, you, and you've started the airplane up numerous times, you kind of just understand what it takes and it's not a complicated process. Um, but there are some things that you need to watch out for, but you know, at the, at that very, those very first couple flights, we actually have them verbalize the checklist. Like I want to see it in your hand through the canopy while I'm parked next to you. And yeah, I want you to read that to me kind of like not, not necessarily to that extreme, but we have them verbalize their checklist uh, for takeoff, their abort briefs, and that whole thing. So like we know that that's on the front of their mind and then that no, nothing was skipped that could put them in a weird situation. But no, do we typically hop in the airplane on every flight and start running from the checklist from top to bottom, like actually having the, the pilot checklist in hand? Uh, absolutely not. That's, that's not. That's not how we operate. What's like the one big gotcha in the F-35 or even just like most jets like that uh, can either get you on your first lesson or even like a seasoned pilot like yourself? What's like 
one thing, if there is one that kind of like comes back to get some pilots and not necessarily get them in trouble, but it's like maybe puts them in a precarious situation. The, the jet, because it doesn't have any external, like we can carry external weapons and pylons. And when I say uh, by pylon, pylons are what, you know, holds the, the, the weapons if we were to carry them. Everything's inside. So the airplane's drag index is like zero. Um, and typically when you're coming, when you're trying to get down, like let's just say, you know, ATC is like late to give you a descent coming into the airfield or, you know, you have a bunch of other jets with you and you need, you know, you need to start descending early. The jet just accelerates even at idle, like coming downhill. Like we are constantly just rocking around with our speed brakes out, like all four or however many jets we have with us because the jet just accelerates. And if you don't watch it, uh, you come in for the overhead and you just, you just like, I'm going to leave Roy Jenkins this. Uh, you, you can quickly be like, you know, 500 miles an hour accelerating, like over the numbers for the overhead break. And then, you know, it's, 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 it's just a very fast downhill, um, which is something different for the guys that flew F-18s. Like there's so much drag on the airplane. You go idle, you know, 10 degrees nose down, you might need a little bit of speed brakes, but like not a lot uh, in this airplane you're you're constantly just trying to manage the energy state to put yourself in the right piece of sky um, and just trying to main, main, maintain the airspeed coming downhill. That, that's probably the biggest challenge I see students have is just, you know, we start, you know, literally hauling ass towards, towards the airfield. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, last couple of questions. Last, I know we were talking for an hour, but talk about starting the demo team. Now, I mean, there's obviously demo teams for other fighter fighter jets as well. Uh, were you like kind of like the sole lead? Were you a part of a team that did that or how did that work? So, you know, we started, this was, it was kind of, uh, uh, just the right place, right time. I got one of my, my commanding officer at the time. Uh, he, he was an old F-18 demo pilot and, you know, he had interest in us standing up the Navy F-35 demo team. Um, so, uh, the model manager, which was a job at the F, the the, uh, the F thirty five squadron that I was at, uh, his name is uh, call sign was Shaft, and he Shaft um, it, yeah, d- d- I was hoping you were going to catch on. To that. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> yeah, uh, other people caught on to that as well. Yeah, uh, doing like a couple of the air shows and stuff like that. Which obviously we try, we try not to highlight that. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> uh, but anyways, Shaft and I. You know, we, we started taking the, we started taking the airplane to like static displays and stuff like that. And then we started getting, you know, interest from our, from our commanding officer and also our Commodore who like owned, like he was uh, an 06. He was a Blue Angel pilot. So it was kind of like the right place at the right time. And what we ended up doing for the better part of a year was, uh, you know, we had to develop the demo. And what does that mean? There's, there's so much that goes into that. We had to go to Lockheed Martin and fly in their own ship kinematic simulators that, you know, cause the simulators we use on base aren't like true replicas of the, they're very, very close, but they're not like own ship kinematic models of the, of the, uh, of the jets. So we had to go to Lockheed Martin and we worked with uh, Billy Flynn and the, the Lockheed engineers, and they were very serious about what we were doing. They, they gave us essentially air show ground school uh, where they had all the, the the subject matter experts for every system in the plane come in and said, hey, you know, like if you're going to do this, watch out for putting the airplane in this configuration, or you know, watch out for inverted flight for a certain amount of time because you know, you know, you're going to expect to see these cautions at this time. 
Uh, and then we went to the simulator with, with Billy Flynn, who was the guy that flew the F-35 at the Paris Air Show. It was the first time they, anybody saw the F-35 like do anything like that. Everybody's heads were like exploded. Um, and so we're working with him. And, you know, we, we didn't really have an idea of what we wanted the demo to look like, but we started with some maneuvers that we wanted to try. And then we, we left. We went back home and Shaft, uh, Shaft and I, uh, we sat in my living room um, and we had a whiteboard and we just threw up what we wanted to do. And then, so then after that, now you have to get Big Navy to sign off on this. So then we had to go to Pax River, Maryland with the, the test the test engineers uh, and get in their simulators. And they put us through the ringer uh, for like, you know, I think it was multiple hours a day, every day for a couple of weeks where every maneuver we wanted to do, we had to try to different altitudes, different airspeeds to find out the regimes where you, you might find yourself in, in an unre- irrecoverable situation, such as like, you know, the square loop, nose low. Uh, if you lose one of your, your horizontal stabs, uh, that's a very, very bad situation uh, in the F-35. So you, we try to push up the altitude so that no matter what happens, you can still recover the aircraft with a buffer above the ground. So after that was complete, um, we built the whole demo, like all the maneuvers for like a full full demo. Um, but what, I, what we came to realize is, you know, we are an emerging community in the Navy. Like we are still working on getting our airplanes and the F-35s where they need to go. Um, we just don't have a lot of a lot of shapes. Um, so we, the first year that I did it, um, we did a very dumbed down version of the, the air show profile or the, the demo. And then hopefully moving forward, as we start getting more jets, we're not taking away from student training or, you know, you have fleet squadrons that are taking these jets like overseas and doing things. Um, hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll eventually end up doing the full demo, but, uh, it sounds like they got a few air shows lined up this year. I'm really good friends with the pilot, uh, strokes Inkle. Um, you know, he, re- he reaches out to me. And <laughs> no, don't, don't do it. Don't All do right. it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, continue. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah. So, um, but I just feel fortunate that I was able to have that experience. I met a lot of really cool people along the way, you know, in the engineering side of the house and at Lockheed Martin, uh, and you know, I was supposed to do it all in 2020, but we know what happened with COVID. Uh, we had like 13 or 15 air shows lined up and we didn't do a single one. Uh, yeah. So, and then at that time I was in my instructor pilot, you know, tour and it was the end of air shows for me. And now I'm, uh, I'm doing what I do now and I'm, and I'm, I feel very fortunate. Uh, and I'm super proud of, you know, you know, like what, what's been able to happen and, and it's just super you know happy to be where I'm at right now. How do you feel like, how cool is it that you were able to like create something, build something in the military, you know, like that's probably going to be used for a long, long time. I mean, that has to be pretty cool because, I mean, usually everything in the military has already been tried and tested and, like, it's all based on everything that they've learned over however many years. But you had the opportunity to help build something. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's it's definitely a highlight of my career. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day where, like, the actual, like, no holds bars demo gets flown in front of an audience. Uh, I think we're probably, you know we're probably two to three years away from that in the Navy just because we don't have as many assets as the, as the air force has to devote, you know, jets to being on the road all the time and doing that. And the training that's required to, to fly that type of an air show is substantial. Um, so, but as far as being able to be involved in that and build it, uh, I feel super fortunate. Uh, yeah. If I could thank all the, the guys that, you know, supported me along the way, I would definitely like to do that. If they're listening to this podcast, um, 
but you know, you kind of mentioned it, like, you know, typically things like that have already been done. Uh, Shaft's, Shaft's role model growing up was Chuck Yeager. Uh, and Shaft's uh, grandfather set up a meeting with Chuck Yeager. And uh, this is kind of a funny story. So Shaft goes up to Chuck Yeager and he's like, you know, Chuck's like, what do you want to do, son? He's like, well, I want to be a pilot. And Chuck Yeager looks at him and says, everything in aviation has already been done by me. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it, it, Shaf, it Shaf tells that story and it, it, it kind of rings to what you're saying. Like not everything in aviation uh, has been done already. Like uh, there's still things to look forward to. There's still things to press the limits on. And and that's I think hilarious. that that's important to recognize. That's very on brand for him from what I hear. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> glad to know he was on brand all the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the final hours. Yep. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's crazy. I mean, hey, look, you proved him wrong. Too bad he wasn't here to see it though. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. No, it's really cool, man. And I guess the last thing, I know we kind of talked about this a little bit, but like, what's next? Like you have accomplished a lot, uh, pretty much from when you started, you, you, there wasn't a certain path to where you wanted to go, but you didn't take no for an answer. You didn't take the no from the Naval Academy. You didn't take the no from being stuck in a squadron that you, you might've liked, you liked people in it, but it wasn't what you wanted to do. Uh, what's next for you? I mean, it seems like you've accomplished so much uh, can you stay in the Navy longer? Can you go fly airlines, slow planes and the monotony of that? Or, um, wh- I don't know, just what do you want to do? Well, right now I just actually, uh, I took a, I took the, I'm going to be a department head in the Navy. So after this tour is complete, uh, you know, a, a department head is like, you're just underneath the commanding officer. You're like, you know, in the Air Force, it'd be like a major rank. In the in the in the Navy, it's lieutenant commander. Um, so you're bridging the gap between junior officers and senior officers in a squadron. Um, and that's that's my next gig. I don't know where I'm going to be going or what I'm going to be flying uh, at this point in time. But I took, uh, you know, the Navy has contracts. I took a five year uh, service obligation for that contract, um, and that takes me right to 20 years. And I think, you know, this this next five years for me is going to be kind of critical in determining, like, you know, is the Navy something I can do for 30 years uh, or do I want to go off and do bigger and better things? And that decision is uh, still on the table. If you stay in the Navy for 30 years, does your retirement, does anything like get better or is it just you always have that 20 year retirement or the 20 year benefits uh, and then you just are there longer? So the way it works is every year after 20 years, you do you get a higher percentage of your your, 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 your pay uh, for retirement. So basically if you do 30 years, you get, instead of 50% of your pay for the rest of your life, you get 75% of your pay for the rest of your life. And if you do 40, you're just like, that's crazy. Uh, you would get a hundred percent of whatever you're making for the rest of your life, plus medical benefits and all the other stuff. <laughs> if you survive after that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, yeah, I don't want, I mean, I'm sure there's people that have done that, but it is to them, right? Uh, kudos to them, but that's not me. Hey, you say that now. You never know. It might be like the, <laughs> the F one hundred and one or something like that. It's like the coolest airplane ever. I don't know. I'm sure you'll be you'll be doing something cool. Yeah, I mean, if they ever came up to me and said we want you to fly the Angad, uh, I would probably stay in the fly. All right, there we go. See, it's going to happen. <laughs> They're going to listen to this. They don't want you to leave because they need pilots, and you're done. You're stuck. <laughs> there you go. Come at me, bro. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. I'll do it. All right. I got a couple of rapid fire questions for you. Uh, it's just a couple of aviation theme questions and you come up with the first answer that comes to your mind. All right, let's try it. All right. What's your favorite airplane ever built? Uh, it's going to have to be the, uh, the Bearcat. All right. Let's say a corporate jet. Do you have a favorite corporate jet? Citation X. What about airline? Citation 10. What about an airline? Ooh, airliner or favorite airline to fly on? 
Uh, let's do uh, the plane right now. So, what uh, favorite airplane? Mm, I still think I'm in the, the the 747. You know, kind of, kind of one of those guys. All right, so you're one of the guys that hasn't given up on them, and they're done forever, <laughs> except for freight. I I guess. <laughs> Don't come I back. I promise. Up, I that was the airplane when I was a kid. So yeah. What's the ugliest airplane you've ever seen? The ugliest airplane I've ever seen. I would have to say a Cessna 172. <laughs> all right, cool. I mean, there's so many of them, so I feel like we're all just desensitized. Desensitized. I can't say that word. Desensitized to them. I think that's why there's just so many of them out there, you know, see everywhere. Uh, what's something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? And this will be two parts. So before you became just your standard general aviation pilot, and then before you became a military pilot. Something I wish I would have known. Uh, I wish I would have known. I wish I would have known, you know, that it was going to be. Oh, this is a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> we can come back to it. Yeah, let's come back to that. All right, cool. Yeah. Uh, who's one person in the industry that you would like to meet most? They could be alive or they could have passed on. Uh, Harley Hall. My, uh, my dad's Blue Angel leader was shot down the last day of the Vietnam War. I would love to meet that guy. Last day. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's yeah. see. Uh, favorite thing about aviation. So if you just choose one thing about flying, aviation, in general, what's your favorite thing? Uh, I love the fact that I'm going to be able to fly assuming that I'm healthy until you know, the day I die. I Hardest approach you've ever flown. Hardest approach I've ever flown. This could be uh, landing zero zero on a carrier. It doesn't have to be just like a standard airport. No, I remember this. Uh, that we had like thirty foot uh, swells uh, out in the ocean. The like which isn't even that big, but they were long period swells. And uh, coming to the back of the carrier at night, the ship was pitching up and down, you know, thirty feet. Um, and it was nighttime. And it was really bad weather. Uh, and you know, we got aboard, but that was one of those times where I got out of the aircraft thinking, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> So that 30, swell, 30 foot swells isn't big. What's a big swell? Uh, one's the crash over the flight deck at 60 or 70 feet. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't just like dumbfounded by that. But yeah, all right, man, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> I had man, like a 20 knot crosswind last week. That was kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's just yeah. you, you get used to it. Yeah. What's your favorite approach you've ever flown? Favorite approach I've ever flown? Yeah. So you had the hardest, mm-hmm. and now what's like the best, uh, your favorite, like one that sticks out? Favorite approach I've ever flown it would have to be um, probably in and out of uh, Tokyo in Atsugi Airbase because you can see Mount Tuji right off there at the right-hand side on a clear day, and it's just beautiful out there. I loved it. What's your favorite airport you've ever landed at? I'm guessing it's going to be the same one, but if you have another one, that's cool too. Favorite airport I've ever landed at would have to be, yeah, I'd have to probably say Atsugi Naval Airbase uh, over there in Japan. Least favorite? Least favorite would be... Oh man, I can get myself in trouble with this. Uh, it's <laughs> Don't get in uh, trouble. <laughs> yeah, least one I've ever been probably Kingsville, Texas. All right, uh, IFR, or VFR, VFR. If uh, let's say you're going back to your military training days and you guys are going out, you know, you land at some random airport in the middle of Texas. You got to go get some food. You're grabbing the crappy crew car. What are you guys going for? Uh, man, we were going for a burger, fries, and a Coke, man. All right. Would you rather fly over mountains, beaches, or the city? Beaches. You could choose one airline or one airliner manufacturer. So would it be Airbus or Boeing to fly on? Boeing. Favorite airline livery you've ever seen? The favorite airline what? Livery, paint job. Ooh. Uh, probably the old, uh, uh, American... Was it? It was like American Airways. No, it wasn't American Airways. Was it? 
Just like shiny back in the day with like the blue and the red. Oh, those American Airlines, yeah. American Airlines, yeah. probably the old ones with like a lot of like the exposed like metal or aluminum yeah, with like, like the, the two stripes on the side. Yeah. yeah. All right. Long trips or short trips? And what I mean by that is you are flying whatever jet, whatever fighter jet for as long as you can possibly fly it, or you can do as many touch and goes on a carrier as possible. I'd take as many touch and goes on a carrier daytime uh, <laughs> as possible. Yep. Uh, what's the hardest check card you've ever had? Uh, probably my uh, division combat lead uh, check ride that I had. Uh, just a lot of a lot of bad guys. Uh, had to work out through that problem. Long debrief, but you know, overall got it done. But that was my my, my, my most challenging one. The biggest regret in your aviation career? Um, the biggest regret would have to be, you know, probably deviating from the the golden path, uh, but. You know, I'm very proud of the fact that I was able to rebound and come back. Biggest win of your career? Biggest win of my career was uh, the day that I selected uh, uh, to be Tacker uh, behind, like, F-18 pilot uh, back in 2014. Would you rather fly a Piper or Cessna? Piper. What is your favorite airline to fly on? Uh, American, just because I, I got the, you know... I'm part of the club, I guess. <laughs> that's cool. I mean, that's all that matters is when you got the yeah. status, right? Nothing yeah. else matters. Yeah, just doing uh, it where I fly out. Typically, there's no other, you know, there's no other airlines. So would you rather fly? Are, but oh, sorry. I fly yeah, that's good. Would you rather fly a CRJ on, I mean, not like as you as a pilot, but be a passenger on a CRJ or an ERJ? Uh, a CRJ because my nephew flies for Skywest. CRJs. Right. There you go. You're probably the only person that's ever said CRJ, but I like it. <laughs> it Got to be different. Just <laughs> support my family. Yeah, man. I love it. That's awesome. Well, hey, Tip, I appreciate it, man. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you being so open and sharing your story. Uh, I think it's really going to resonate well with the audience and uh, hopefully we can have you on again and hopefully you'll be able to see the F-35 do a full-blown demo and uh, hopefully we all can be there and I'll watch it because that'd be pretty fun. You got to stop letting the F-22 have all the fun. I know, man, but I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. Uh, if you guys ever need any like clarification on just Navy stuff, feel free to hit me up, but we'll be seeing you in the skies out there somewhere. Absolutely. We'll make you the Navy guy. How about that? There we go. I'll be the <laughs> Navy subject matter expert for you. Perfect, man. I appreciate it so much. Uh, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one. See ya. AV Nation, that is a wrap of episode 166 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Like I said, be on the lookout 5-4. Huge announcement drop. We're going to launch our product and it's going to be epic. Please, please be on the lookout for that. Make sure to follow Pilot the Pilot on Instagram so you do not miss out on that. Uh, other than that, please follow us on Instagram. Like I just said, you can leave us a review on iTunes. That's how we get more traction for the podcast. Uh, if you went to Sun and Fun, I hope you had a great time. I'm really looking forward to Osh. I will be there. Cannot wait. But I hope everyone's having a great day, staying safe, and as always, happy flying.